The poet Rilke wrote, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. I may not complete this last one, but I give myself to it. I've always loved this poem, this idea of progressive expansion, of widening the lens, of moving outward, including more into our vision, and even thinking about music and resonance. I picture these sound waves that travel out into space and just keep ringing. Maybe that's why I'm so drawn to this concept of unknowing, to this practice, because it feels to me that as we let go of what we think we know, we can expand into deeper and deeper ways of knowing. And the process continues again and again and again. And this is how we grow. This is how we love. This is how we create in this kind of expansive, widening circle kind of way. I picture a pebble dropping into a body of water and watching those concentric circles move outward, or even the rings on a tree. And today's guest, Lindsay Branham, inhabits multiple rings on that tree. She's an artist, contemplative, academic, filmmaker, and eco-doula. These are the rings of the tree of Lindsay. She says they all strike similar vibrations from a common center, a yearning to seed a more loving world. She's Cambridge educated, graduated with a master's summa cum laude, Emmy-nominated filmmaker, and has extensive training in trauma-informed care, and now is studying ecology. You know, you just have to add a few more things to that list there to be impressed. I met Lindsay through the Center for Action and Contemplation. We were both in their two-year formation program called the Living School for Action and Contemplation. I was in the class ahead of Lindsay, and I'm just going to be upfront and honest and tell you all that I was freaking intimidated by her. <laughs> she is such a force and is so profoundly accomplished. Um, but she doesn't wear that outwardly. It, it's her energy, her depth, her presence, and how she weaves between these seemingly disparate fields of founding a foundation of artistic expression through film, an incredible academic career, and um, contemplative practice, and is one of the co-founders of Widen that we will get into and talk about, which is an experiential learning community oriented toward the contemplative practices and social change. So this is today's guest. I hope you're ready. The last time I sat down with Lindsay was actually in beautiful Topanga Canyon, California, was uh, this past summer. And true to form, as we sat there talking, I had the profound experience of, of witnessing her wisdom and experiencing her wisdom like a ringing bell uh, that just was vibrating through me. Um, and it was so healing, so inspiring, so clarifying. I hope you have a similar experience as you listen to today's episode. So with that, let's dive right into episode 10 of Unknowing with Lindsay Branham. So, Lindsay, it's so great to have you on Unknowing because, first of all, I'm a huge fan of your work, 
And I actually got to hang out with you. What was that like two weeks ago in California? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had one of those conversations that was the kind of conversations that are like outside of time and space. I don't know how long we sat there. I don't remember if it was like a couple hours or something, but we covered so much territory and it, it resounded so deeply in me and inspired me in so many ways that I I'm just so grateful that I get to now bring you on the show. We're going to do part two of that conversation <laughs> so that everybody else can feel the magic of your presence and your being. So welcome to Unknowing. Thank you, Bree. I'm so grateful to be here. And I feel similarly about that conversation. So I usually like to begin by asking guests, what is the map that you were handed growing up to make sense of reality? I think the map that I was handed was really one shaped by the rooms of recovery. And I was raised in the rooms of AA and Al-Anon. And so my map included a lot of very much like estranged family and secrets and confusion and trauma, as well as this like generative life around healing, possibility, um, community, what it, the map of being honest and transparent, leading to connection, freedom, wholeness. That was kind of map one. And then map two was this very evangelical, white male God, punishment, do things right, um, achieve and earn love. I mean, that right there on the map, on the Christian evangelical map, achieve and earn love. Like that alone, I feel like could send us down a massive trail of discovery. But I want to dig into maybe what was the first moment that you remember a arrival at the end of the edge of one of those maps, or maybe both of them, where you began to first veer off and trust your own experience or journey into something that was beyond the confines of what you were handed um, mm -hmm. you know, and I like to say, did you, wh when did you veer off the map or when did you add a page? Mm -hmm. So can you think mm -hmm. of a time when, when that really began for you? I was 22 and I was in a town outside of Goma in Eastern DRC. And this is the Democratic Republic of Congo. At the time, it was the deadliest war in the world since World War II. And I was sitting in a schoolhouse with a friend of mine and in front of us were 13 young boys and young girls all under the age of 12, 13. And they had all been child soldiers. And one by one, they started telling us about what had been forced upon them, what they had been forced to do within the various rebel groups. And there was a little boy named Moisha who told me that he had with his own hands killed 10 people and he did it to save his own life. And the frame of a child in front of me, a little boy, having done something so grievous, really shattered my maps. Um, it, made, it made things make no sense. And at the same time, this like delicate life that was still very much alive in him and it pointed me to a complexity of a story that existed in which he also had to be able to belong to for the full story to have any meaning. I want to know some of your journey and your background. You began 
as a freelance journalist. Is that what took you to the DRC or, or how did you end up there? I want to know about how you got in that situation to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right after I graduated from undergrad, I studied journalism and I, I went and lived in Uganda for the summer with a group of friends and we were living in a village in which there were quite a few refugees from the Congo and Rwanda who were seeking asylum in Uganda and establishing their new lives there. And we developed these really rich friendships over the course of the summer where just over tea and um, being in their homes, learning about what they had survived and been through. And I really wanted to go to the Congo and understand for myself and be a part of documenting both the difficulties and the life that both are there. And so my first job as a, as a newly graduated young person was to work for a humanitarian organization in the Congo as a writer and photographer. So I was traveling all over the East, documenting their work, and then met this group of child soldiers um, during that time. And this is where I'm fascinated by the experience you had at that young age, because you're sitting there and there are these moments when the brokenheartedness of this world, the reality that many are living, confronts and ruptures our privilege or our own stories or our own experiences. And the poignant way that you described that, the tenderness of his life, also resonated something of hope in you. And so I'm curious when you began to both experience and discover the power of storytelling as a vehicle for change. Mm-hmm. It was really with Moisha. We we decided to keep following him and documenting his journey of trying to now come back home as a little boy who had done things he should have never even witnessed, much less committed with his own hands and trying to now be a kid and go to school. And it wasn't going well for him. He faced a lot of stigma, confusion, rejection. He was experiencing quite a bit of of trauma, understandably. And he ended up being re-recruited by multiple rebel groups and going in and out over the next two years. So I followed him for several years and he ended up going missing at one point. And our friends in his in his area and in his village didn't know where he had gone. He had ended up being recruited by the National Army to be in their special forces unit, even as a child. And to make a very long journey short, um, we were able to, with the UN's help, secure his official release from the National Army and bring him back home. And sitting with his mother over multiple days and him in kind of circle and in community, it became very evident that the people who needed to understand what he had been through were not... Americans like me, bringing a story here to show them what he had been through. It was his neighbor. It was his sibling. It was the teacher that lived down the road. That's where the gap existed of understanding and care and what would actually translate into something meaningful for his life. Um, So we started getting really curious about what this circular storytelling could look like, where stories are created with and for the community. Which is so, uh, it, it's a refreshing approach that is non-white centered, non-West American centered, because so much of how we think about allying with the important changes in the rest of the world is that white savior, the American savior, the complex of coming in. And there's something deeply voyeuristic and wrong mm-hmm. about that approach. And so, you know, I'm kind of witnessing in this moment, like thinking through that experience that you were having 
was this what sparked for you the curiosity around the psychology of behavior change and how it happens through storytelling? And then how did that prompt you to continue down that path of learning how we think of ourselves, how stories matter, and how critical stories are, sharing of stories, to empathy, compassion, and um, collective shifts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. There was an organization that I came across during that time called Search for Common Ground, and they were doing these mobile cinema screenings. And it was around sexual violence, but they were holding these large screenings and having workshops and dialogue afterwards. So that was my like exposure to this concept. But um, <clears throat> it became very evident that stories can be another extraction from the developing world just like gold and coltan and cobalt and everything else that's stolen. So if I'm the storyteller, am I interested in being a part of an extractive process or do I want to be a part of something else? And it really became a clear choice. And especially in Eastern DRC, where they've been flooded with international journalists and humanitarian aid workers over many years, people were really fed up. People were really frustrated. And community members sometimes would even throw rocks at UN vehicles or refuse to engage in interviews. Understandably, they're just asking, why? What what does this do for me to tell you again about this horrible thing I've been through? So ethically, as a storyteller, how do you honor the person who the story is about as primary? And not continue to, as a colonialist, um, take. So that being the case, this interest and desire around, okay, what would it look like to create stories with and for communities? And then also what are we wanting to see happen through that and allowing the community to decide? So behavior change, what does that really mean? Um, How do stories affect the way someone thinks about themselves, believes um, what they believe about the world? Like all of that is fodder for possibility, but that can also be an area where colonialism and imperialism comes in and says, this is the change we want to see and now we're going to drive it forward versus really sitting with and allowing the community to determine what shifts they are valuing and then creating stories from there. But I wanted to understand the psychology of the mind uh, from a traditional psychological scientific space to allow that to at least be a frame in which I could work within. And for example, aesthetic distance is really important in story, meaning um, the space between me and the character is where this magic happens, how I identify or confine myself in the character is the extent and degree into which I can kind of allow my identity to dissolve and become the character. And through the journey of being in the character's lived experience, then I begin to kind of play with and like dance with options for my own life. Um, so that's that can take place, something we've implemented Um cognitive dissonance, so introducing things that are a bit different than the previously held beliefs and ideas to create a bit of edge and um, constriction and conflict. And within that bursting forward, then something new has the chance to arise. You might think of that as like third way kind of, or fourth way, right? Yeah. Um, Kind of thinking, third force thinking. And predicting 
behavior is one of the most difficult and challenging fields of study within social psychology. It's actually almost impossible to say what will change someone's behavior, which is why a lot of people just focus on awareness or knowledge or beliefs. But that doesn't tell us really much of anything about what people will do out in the world. And yet the stories and the narratives that we're living and existing and moving within begin to create a culture and that social norm now begins to shape our behavior much more so than what my individual belief is about any one thing. So mapping what does a community believe and how are they living in the world is, is more of a predictive way to kind of shift behavior into peaceful or positive dimensions than focusing on anyone's individual belief. Which is just wildly alternative to how we're groomed to think in the West and particularly as white people with that colonial need to control, to subjugate, to anticipate, and to exercise control in a version of manipulation, exploitation. So I'm even thinking about how we're taught to think of our own stories, how we're taught to consider ourselves as drivers of our own destiny, which of course that is to some degree true. But what happens in that conditioning is a complete absence of what you're describing as the communal direction, Mm -hmm. where the community is moving. How is that shaping thoughts and beliefs? And I kind of want to take a pause here because I'm nerding out (laughs) listening to you. And I want to ask more about this, um, the relationship between behavior and story. And I'm curious about how you view or what you see as the um, influence of what creates either a positive or negative power of story. And it's a very simplistic Mm -hmm. way to frame it, but I'm just curious about what the differences are in what allows a story to become necessary and healing and part of change and liberation. And also how do stories become prisons of social behavior that hold us back? Good question. And one follow-up thought to the community piece is there's a a leader in a village called Duru that I worked in in Northern Congo. And he talked about the metaphor of the hand and the individual is a finger, Mm. the community is a hand. Oh, I love that. And the body doesn't operate with one finger, right? So the way people are thinking is only in terms of community. And that's so difficult for Westerners to grasp where truly our liberty is bound together. It's not an idea. It's a lived everyday reality. If the rebels are coming and attacking this village, they will, all of us will suffer. And so we all are doing what we can to support one another in our freedom and liberation. And it's a shame that we don't have the same type of lived interconnectivity here. And the invitation is always there from the natural world. Um, for us to begin to explore that. But because our survival isn't hinged on it in the same way as in other places, it's so easy to discount and ignore. And yet that's the fallacy because our survival is actually so dependent on the living world. If these trees don't stand, we will not stand. And yet we can exist in such a way that that's that's not the case, which is the great illusion, right? But um, to your question, and and I think about this a lot because we're introducing a story 
to um, spark. I love John Paul Lederach's framing around the moral imagination. He's a peace builder from Notre Dame, and he writes about instilling a moral imagination in community or finding what their moral imagination is, meaning what is the imagination of what might be possible, the next like most beautiful horizon. And in storytelling, that's, that's my frame. What is the moral imagination that this story can convey? And not just convey, but where people can adopt it as theirs and it becomes part of a cultural lexicon for them. So, for example, in southern India, we did a project called Call Me Priya with the Freedom Fund. And this is a story about a young girl in modern-day slavery in Tamil Nadu who is able, with the help of her friend and a a friendship with a teacher, to believe in herself. And she wins this writing contest and she gets herself out of slavery. This film was shown to over 10,000 young girls in Tamil Nadu over the course of a year with a year-long workshop that they participated in. Now you go into these villages, everyone knows the name Priya, that's the main character in the film. They talk about Priya as if it's their best friend who's alive. They reference what Priya has taught them, who Priya is, what Priya might be doing now. And so heroes, the role of aspirational heroes where the heroes is speaking their language, is from their community, is not someone from the outside, is just like them. It is so honestly breathtakingly beautiful to see people believe in themselves because they see what's possible. And I don't know if I said this to you in our conversation previously when we were hanging out in Topanga, but there's something resonant about how chords are made and how they you know, they influence the power of one note because you feel the chord underneath it. And that description of the power of representation and story of seeing a hero that looks like you, that comes from where you are, that is speaking your language, both literally and figuratively, it's so clear and so evident that we need the embodiment of what is possible. In many times, we need the embodiment of what is possible to believe that it's real and possible for us as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Without being falsely aspirational. Yeah. And that's this fine line of it. What, what is this introducing without selling something fake? Because hope is also rooted in the unknown and there's darkness there too. Okay, I want to go there. I want to talk about how unknowing is not just this aspirational, hopeful, la-di-da, rainbow unicorn, like, just jump, (laughs) just go, but requires a familiarity with, a peacemaking with, the chaotic, uncertain, dangerous as well, the edge of reality. And you brought up ecology a minute ago, and I was going to ask you this question later, but I actually feel like it's really powerful to talk about right now with this conversation about moving toward the unknowing with both hope, trust, but also gravity, a sense of of awareness and sobriety. And I, I know that ecology and eco-spiritual frames have been really meaningful to you and have woken something up in you and animated you lately. And so I want to ask you how your lens has grown to center the seen and unseen community of life on this planet lately. 
you know how David White talks about asking beautiful questions of your life? Mm, yeah. You're good at asking this. <laughs> <laughs> mm. In this, I guess in the last year and a half in the pandemic year, it's, I've felt a real shift and an invitation from the more than human world to be in deep reciprocity and in deep intimacy with them. And of course, I'm someone that's loved nature my whole life. I enjoy the quote wilderness. I don't use the word wilderness anymore, but um, there's been a, a change into a relationship that actually has the tenor and the tone and the feeling of human relationship, meaning there's um, pain there. There's abandonment. There's um, confusion. There's the dance of getting to know and am I safe and do they like me and do I like them and what does it feel like to be around one another and will they think I'm special or will they give this type of love to every other being that passes by? Um, these like very like human relational dilemmas I've experienced in the more than human world in the last year and a half just by product of spending so much unfiltered, unstructured time um, in a really more naked way where I'm not uh, listening to something or distracted um, and giving my full presence. And what does it feel like to deepen presence with a with beings that are very much alive and have energetic coherence. And there's the ability to be in a type of communication. We know that trees communicate with other trees. They share nutrients and sugars and even send electrical signals to one another to warn each other of danger. The hidden life of trees is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I love that book. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. And as we think about ecological realities of climate collapse and our carbon emission goals and species that are dying, how do we metabolize that? It's so huge. It's so huge. And for me, I think it really starts with relationship. We protect what we love. We will defend what we love. And so it starts with how do I love the more than human do they love me? Is there Robin Wall Kimmer wrote Braiding Sweetgrass talks extensively about the nature of reciprocity. It's not just about me going into the natural world and receiving this gift of their luscious beauty and their stability and their consistency. It's what am I returning? A relationship is not one dimensional. It's not one way. And my gift that I return could be from systemic efforts. I participate in to protect the planet, but it's also very small. And how am I actually showing up in front of this rock? How am I appearing in front of this tree? Am I really taking their being in at, in every cell? It brings to mind the way that a friend of mine said, uh, don't be a musician because it's the career that you want to have or the given artistic platform, he said, become a musician because it makes you into a certain kind of person, a person who pays attention, who knows how to weave story and music to create an experience in the body and a resonance. And as I'm listening to you talk, I'm like, of course, it's that experience of a filmmaker that you bring to your attention and the quality of your being, of your presence, of how you're showing up. 
And I want to ask you about the courage of creativity and what it requires and how it is also a weaving together of a communal lens, a widening of your lens frame. And so we're kind of jumping back and forth, but I'm, I'm moving with it because I do feel like this is a bit of a weave. But I want to hear about the founding of Novo for you. And what was the seed that you first recognized as the beginning of that? And was that call like just deep within you? Was it resonating in a communal way? I want to hear from you, like what that moment of the birth of the idea felt like in your body. I had done one mobile cinema project in Northern DRC around child soldiers or around children in armed conflict returning back home and help facilitating peaceful reintegration and really meeting their mental health needs, but from a community perspective, not a one-to-one more clinical Western approach. And that had gone really, really beautifully, which led to the second mobile cinema project. They came at night, similarly about reintegrating former child combatants. And I worked with this team, of course, this film team, And they were so excited. You spoke about the communal element. They were constantly asking me, okay, what's next? What are you going to do with this? Are you going to found something? Like, what are you doing? This is amazing. This is so beautiful, this idea. And there was a lot of resistance in me, just fear of taking that risk. What would it mean to start this? And um, I think maybe the feeling in my body was, being in this village in South Sudan where I was meeting with a number of community leaders and something just all of a sudden felt easy. The invitation just felt really clear. It kind of opened and it was the next most obvious right thing. And it was no longer in the space of um, deliberation. It just tipped and that's happened several times in my like creative life where there's this deliberation and confusion and then something just pauses. It's like this still maybe like Shivaic consciousness opens and you sort of feel this freedom and lift in the body of like, oh yeah, no, obviously. Okay. <laughs> it's like, wait, how did this become? Yeah. Uh, yes. And of course it doesn't necessarily stay in that like beautifully uplifted. <laughs> right. Then the process of keeping the baby alive, which is a whole nother. Mm-hmm. But I, it's fascinating to me because I felt the shift even in my own body as you were describing it. There is something that moves from blocked resistance questioning into like crack, 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 crack alignment, you know, mm-hmm. and then your spine is straight and you're, you roll your shoulders back, your heart is open and your voice is clear. And it's like, it's just, it's a mystery to me of how that comes about. But I don't believe it's a singular process. And that's why I asked about the community piece, because I think many times when we're in this season of unknowing, we're pregnant with something. And it's really the community that calls forth the birth. You know, we may have these ideas for a long time, stewing in the background or maybe even unconsciously like other people can see it can see and mirror back to us what's unfolding sometimes better than than we can Mm -hmm. um i have to say that the values of novo kind of like took my breath away i was like oh can i just make them my own personal values but um 
they are innovation, imagination, and interconnection. And then you have these beautiful descriptions for what they are. And as you know, this show is all about unknowing. So I'm curious, do you see unknowing as necessary for each of these values to create or reveal the new? How does unknowing animate innovation? How does it create a foundation for imagination? And how does it lead to interconnection? How does that play itself out in the creativity of of the next, the new? Hmm. Give me one second. I want to look at something that I wrote. (laughs) The unknowing piece feels very foundational to all of them. I wrote some a long piece on our inclusion lens and how we're thinking about inclusion at Novo. But the first value is cultural humility. And that means radically taking a position of not knowing and not just, oh, I want to learn about this other, which is still very much rooted in a colonialist mindset. But I am here to be completely taught and not so that I can kind of shape based on learning about the other, meaning like a continued like difference between us, but allowing that uncomfortable space of free fall really to not be changed or fixed. And out of that can come true ideas, can come true collaborations, can come true magic. So I think unknowing is foundational, which influences how a story is told, why it's told, where it's told, who it's told with. And as well as choosing the margins, meaning the margins are not a place in which to, um, again, offer something to, but to actually like sit at the feet of and be taught by. So the margins aren't a problem. And Bell's Hooks talks a lot about that as the site of resistance and struggle. And so that's, that is a deep unknowing. How, how do you sit in that site of belonging that is also resi- a site of resistance and struggle? Um, and often in kind of storytelling about or with marginalized communities, there can be so much exploitation that happens. Hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about that and which is why I wrote this at all, but who benefits from these stories, mm-hmm. really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why? And who are we telling them to? All these questions really need to be considered. And good stories is not the only ethic. Or even in the sense of the unbelievable influence of consumerism in the midst of colonial mindsets, which is that these things exist for my benefit. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to have it. It's mine. I can take it. I can pick it. I can put it in a vase and look at it. Oh, isn't that pretty? Isn't that cute? Isn't that interesting? And it's a form for us to exercise a false sense of control and distancing. And I love how you described the power of just sitting in discomfort and not moving into fix it, solve it mode, because there is in that mysterious space of dissonance is the uh, the rupture then opens us up to the mystery of who we can become outside of the frames of what we were familiar with, what we thought we knew. Yeah, I'm very, very moved by the intention with which you set up these values and statements, because that's what I felt as I was reading them. It was like, okay, this is somatically spiritually and, um, you know, creatively 
seeking to approach this form of storytelling and art from such a humble place. Um, and I want to pivot to one of your other projects, because why stop at being a filmmaker and social scientist when you can do a few other things? Um, you also started a collective experiential in-person and online learning community called Widen. And immediately I was like, of course, lens, widen, you know, inclusion, seeing things differently. But I want to hear about how that vision was born and what inspired you to move into the space of spirituality and, and contemplative practices at the time that you did. Mm -hmm. So tracing it back to the Congo, I was in kind of my own deconstruction from evangelical Christianity period. And a Congolese friend of mine, actually, Nadine Lucy, whose parents started Heal Africa, which is, look it up, it's this incredible hospital that does fistula repair surgeries. And she handed me um, The Naked Now by Richard Rohr. And I started reading that sitting, I can remember I was, I was sitting on this pile of lava rocks, looking out at Lake Kivu and just astounded by what I was reading. I'd kind of given up perhaps ever returning to a formal tradition. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't say I necessarily have returned to a formal tradition, but to encounter the generosity in which Father Richard speaks of mystery, speaks of the divine in an inclusive way where you said earlier, like you can feel, I could feel it in my body through his words. And I had also just come out of spending a month with young girls in northern Uganda who had experienced sexual violence by a rebel group and had children as a result. And so they were in this month-long rehabilitation. So I'm, that's kind of the frame and context in which I'm, I'm encountering these words. And I had decided while I was there, no more Jesus, no more God, <laughs> no more Christianity. This makes no sense for the burn world. Burn that map. I'm going yeah. to go ahead and burn that map. <laughs> that map is scorched. <laughs> and um, <laughs> damaging. And then here come these like cool waters of kind of a gentle invitation. And there's something in my spirit that felt a resonance and a chord was struck that invited me to soften and open. Fast forward to maybe a couple of years later, I was able to meet Father Richard in a small gathering in Albuquerque and with some friends and peers that were kind of feeling the same questions. And after that weekend, it became really evident to my friend and sister partner, partner in, in work, <laughs> Tiffany Casey and I, that there was a real need for a space in which um, artists, educators, you know, social entrepreneurs, humanitarians, thoughtful, loving, kind people could begin asking really difficult, scary questions, but with one another mm -hmm. and kind of buttressed by the tradition of um, what Father Richard offers, but also just the contemplative path, the non-dual, the both and, the allowing instead of needing to have answers, the invitation to return to self as an authority, to listen to the body, all of these felt like deep, deep medicine. And so we 
fell in love with a Rilke poem. I live my life in widening circles mm-hmm. and it just fit. This is what we're hoping to see happen in expansion. And so widen was born from that. And we have now had five in-person gatherings in New Mexico And Father Richard has taught all of them alongside Jackie Lewis, Reverend Jackie Lewis, out of Middle Church in New York, Caitlin Curtis, Mirabai Starr, and others. And and then in COVID, we've pivoted to digital offerings. And really the, the hope here is to build a community in which an expanded spiritual paradigm is generative, life giving, life sustaining, and there is um, like joy and energy to do beautiful things on this earth and have reverence for every living thing. It's so stunning. And it, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier about the power of embodiment to see reflected what is possible because I, damn it, I never made it to one of the widening gatherings. <laughs> Although I think I tried a couple of times. I was seeing, um, I was looking back at our email exchange, I think in 2018, I was like, maybe I can make it work between this travel and this trip and this thing and my mm-hmm. kids and the, what, you know, bat, my back and forth traveling from Michigan to Albuquerque when I was working for the CAC. But I've had so many friends who, you know, widening circles, the ripple effect of widen, where they've had friends who were present at these events And the power of the experience that I have heard through this ripple effect, grapevine, telephone, is that the being there in person and seeing other young people, other entrepreneurs, other people in the midst of life, uh, the first half of life of building, animating change in this world and also creative expressions, to gather in that modality and say, oh, you too? Oh, I'm asking that question. We're exploring these questions and to do it together again brings up the importance of the pivotal shift away from us thinking of ourselves as individuals and that we're on this journey and this is our singular story and begins to animate instead a vision, a lens of, oh, there is something afoot here. And if we listen and we do it together, powerful things can happen. Mm-hmm. You think of Indra's net of interconnectivity, which comes from Eastern tradition, and the jewel in the net reflects all the other jewels back to each other. And so it's the specific in the cosmic whole. Mm. And I think of that so much for this. It's get in the net. We're reflecting one another. And that is the whole thing. Mm. There is no me. There is no you. Yes, we're in our bodies. We're in this experience on earth. But the invitation is to actually submit to um, to the whole. Yeah. But we do. We have so much resistance, I think. And I want to ask you about trauma, too, because, you know, sometimes our resistance is tied to real heartbreak, real trauma, particularly around the religious or spiritual explorations because those maps that we were given were maybe outdated or unhealthy versions of what the collective wisdom is inside of that container. And I think we've gotten really good at mistaking the container for the contents of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so how did you and Tiffany experience that with folks coming in 
because um, in many ways, I, I saw the work that you were doing is building this incredible gateway experience for people to say, okay, let me just dip my toe into these conversations because I don't want to go back to the religious frame that I grew up in. That's not, that's not it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still a hunger that drew people. So was it trauma that you felt you were, was it, was it bodily stored resistance? What did you notice in people as they began to soften and widen into the experience of widen? Well, one, we definitely weren't trying to, and aren't ourselves, trying to get people to believe in anything mm-hmm. or be a part of anything. Which already is liberatory. It's like... Right. There's no agenda. <laughs> uh-huh. There's no converting. <laughs> There's no believe this set of things. Uh-huh. And the contemplative path is about paying attention and being aware of what is right now as it is. That's literally it. So... We're inviting people into a weekend where we get to pay attention and pay attention to our bodies, to one another, to the living world around us, to the food we're eating, to the feeling of the air on our skins. And honestly, it's the experience of deep attention and then what that awakens, I think, in people that begins to soften. So it becomes really evident that this is not about belief and head knowledge. This is about full body knowing there's knowing and then there's knowing and then there's knowing. So a lot of practices, this, you know, we do breath practice and movement practice and walking practice and really felt that was so missing from my experience of Christianity, but also the body is our, well, Richard Rohr says the living world is the first sacred text, right? So maybe the body is like the first sacred holy ground um, that we stand on. And um, I came into this, and many do, with with real trauma that's not to be underestimated from, for me, I'll just speak for myself, being taught that my body is um, a vehicle of sin, mostly, and to be distrusted, discounted, contorted, shrunk, not listened to, another trauma, being being taught not to trust my own intuition at any cost mm-hmm. because it's corrupt and defective. What does it do to have people going around this planet literally unable to listen to themselves and um, believe that the answers are not only from the outside, but they're only from one source outside, a right. white man in the sky. <laughs> and people came in of um, different backgrounds or perhaps um, different races who had particular experiences of trauma, of exclusion, marginalization, oppression. And their their families and communities had been particularly targeted by uh, the Christian religion. So all of that was present. All of that was welcome. Everyone's whole self is fully welcome. Nothing has to be left out or silenced or um, made smaller. And so much consideration goes into what is a truly brave space. There's Mm -hmm. conversation around what is a safe space, but no space can be truly safe when there's bodies of different colors and backgrounds in one room. It's safe for you, not for me. So what does it mean to be brave together? Meaning I'm willing to be at my own edge. I'm willing to be self-reflective. I'm willing to take the posture of student. Mm. 
And that was like really the qualification to come. If you can do that, like we're good. What a container. I'm just thinking about that edge of the widening edge being that place where you are willing to unknow your own stories, your own biases, your own inherited perspectives, privileges, um, to sit at the feet of learn from, listen deeply from a different place, not from the mind, but from the whole body. And I know that embodiment is really, really important. And I believe in the importance of a centering embodiment, especially in contemplative circles. And you've just offered, Wyden just offered a series on embodiment. What do you see as being central about that centering of the body as necessary for both social and ecological change and justice to occur? I mean, you even said it beautifully. There's knowing, there's knowing, there's knowing. And, you know, you can't see it, but your hand went, started at the head and kept moving down with each knowing. And so I had that felt sense in my own body of like, oh, there's a deeper place of knowledge that the body holds. So, yeah, tell us more. Absolutely. Well, you think of kind of what we're facing on a societal or kind of international scale, right? Ecological collapse, political collapse, social collapse, division, isolation, inequality, all of the things. And how can I possibly feel for the collective or have a sense of how to engage in a meaningful way for all beings if I have an inability to feel for, tend to, and care for this being, my being. It starts here. Mm, mm. And Audre Lorde talks about the erotic as pleasure, as life force. So the erotic obviously has a sexual connotation. It really doesn't mean that. It means so much more. It's all about what, yeah, yeah, what is fully, what makes us fully alive? So do I have a sense of life force in this body? Um, What is my relationship to pleasure, to eros? Um, Can I generate that within? And how can I then expect to show up that way with a friend or a lover, much less someone across a line of difference, much less with the body of the earth? So the body is, it's an individual body connected to a collective body, connected to the body of the earth. It's all body. Mm-hmm. And how I can understand that full ripple starts in my particular vessel in which I was born into. My one responsibility on this planet ultimately is to care for this vessel first. And um, and there's so much interesting non-cognitive wisdom available all the time. Mm. Oh, I love how you just said that. Non-cognitive wisdom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And this energetic coherence, right? We know that the heart emits an electromagnetic field. This is not something my brain is conscious of. And when I'm in the presence of another body, their heart is emitting an electromagnetic field. Our electromagnetic fields are literally entangling by being near one another. What is that frequency? And it can really be thought of in terms of pitch. What is the pitch of the frequency in which I'm emitting? And the only influence I have over that is how, what is vibrating through me at all times. And that's not to say there's no room for difficult, dark, sad (laughs) struggle. It's all part of it, but um, the body is 
yeah, is the microphone. As you were talking about the electromagnetic field that this heart is producing, I was thinking of bodiliness as instruments, you know? It's like, what is the difference if you were to look at a, a sheet of music and you see these dots on these lines? Imagine if we were to walk around and say, ah, this is knowing. <laughs> this is what music is. And you're just waving a sheet of paper around, you know? Yeah. It's like, how sad, mm -hmm. right? Kindle mm -hmm. <laughs> <Kendall Maj. Yeah. laughs> It's too bad. <laughs> it's like, oh, well. But in the story, imagining the difference between, ah, this is music to the resonance of music being played yeah. and the bodiliness of these instruments. That is music. That yeah. is resonance. And the harmonics that we're able to create together are only possible if we first tend to this vessel, as you said, and open, open it mm -hmm. up, you know, which mm -hmm. is why I love the draw that you and Tiffany had to this word widen, because it seems like this expansion is the beginning of resonance, is the beginning of harmonization, of playing these notes together in a new way that rubs like you said it's not afraid of the tension some of the best harmonies i've heard are really rubby but it's that tension that allows for flow and for music and the symphonic unfolding to happen mm -hmm. yeah somatic abolitionist resma menachem mm -hmm. you might be familiar mm -hmm. with he wrote mm -hmm. my grandmother's hands and his perspective of the body is really this beautiful invitation to consider a regulated body regulates other bodies. So his, his statement is, is really, if you want to be an anti-racist, regulate your body. The most important way you can participate in racial justice is to regulate your body because regulated bodies regulate other bodies. That is a task though, and a mission and is not something small because we're carrying around as he teaches epigenetic trauma that if, and I'm a white bodied person in a white supremacist society, I carry the legacy of an oppressor in this body. Mm -hmm. It's not conscious, but it's in my, it's in my body. So how was I trained through experiences that my ancestors had to respond to difference in a certain way? And that actually has to be deconstructed and it's my responsibility it's my invitation it's my privilege and pleasure to do that work because I'm participating in collective renewal and it feels small because the practices mean you know me in my room doing regulation um, but it's so much bigger because of if everyone was regulating the collective nervous system would change and if we're not able to have that awareness and ability to regulate these bodies, mm -hmm. self-regulate, then we're never capable of humbly sitting in the dissonance of discomfort, which is the only place that transformation happens. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you're inviting us to see that daily practice of regulation as concomitant with that bigger vision of like, yeah, I want to participate in social transformation. Of course you do. It starts here, <laughs> cellular, Absolutely. at a cellular level. Yeah. Can you unknow and unsay the inherited stories that we're carrying unknowingly for those of us who are in white bodies of being oppressors? So I could, I could talk to you all day, Lindsay. I want to like ask you 17 more questions, but I want to kind of begin to wrap us up. And one of the things that I like to ask guests is 
about the current landscape of your map making or what you're exploring, where the the edges of your own, you know, inner compass are leading you <laughs> at this particular mm-hmm. moment. Where are you being invited into unknowing right now? Well, it connects to what we were just saying, but um, in the last year, I've faced some very difficult and mysterious health challenges. And the map of unknowing and mystery has been in my body. And at points, it's felt like I'm sitting face to face with my dearest friend. And I'm asking, what do you need? I'm listening. I'm here. How can I help you? And I hear nothing back. Mm. And in that space, I let it be. I trust that the answer will come when it needs to come. I have learned to dance really deeply in a type of liminality I would have never desired to learn about, but feels important to my journey, certainly, and has connected me um, mysteriously, quantumly, to others that suffer from not understanding what's happening to them Hmm. in a very real way. And it's not always like that. And sometimes there's beautiful shifts and sometimes I get a sense for how to meet my body's needs, but sometimes I really don't. And so for people that feel like, oh, I'm doing the listening, I'm doing the pausing and the practices and just keep going. Rilke says, no feeling is final, right? It's true. And no state is final. And um, in that space, I will say, I've experienced the most um, like beautiful intimacy with myself, with divine great mother, with the more than human. Rituals have come to me in that kind of, unknown atmosphere, ideas, um, messages, honestly, like transmissions that wouldn't have happened had I not just been laying on the ground, tears in my eyes, not trying to change or fix it because I tried all those things and they didn't work. So at the edge. At the edge. I mean, completely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I've said this to you before, but it's worth saying again, There is something so interesting to me about how the gate for so many mystics was around this particular struggle of being at the edge of their own body's limitations or having inexplicable ailments that couldn't be resolved in any kind of quick or easy way. And the surrender, the surrender into being with one's body despite the discomfort is such a holy gate. And I just want to say you are walking it you are walking it. And thank you for bringing your embodied presence and wisdom, your lens, your sight for possibility and uh, imagination for change to this show today. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Brie. It's been a pleasure. Okay. So, we're learning how to look up from the maps that we've been handed to move outward into unknowing 
in widening circles. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking from this conversation. One, the relationality of everything. To dismiss the fallacy of our being separate individuals and really see ourselves as relationally connected to each other in our communities, to uh, the whole human family, but also to the more than human family, to the planet itself. And look, I know this is something that like every contemplative podcast is talking about or a mystical blah, blah, blah. And I get that it's easy to gloss over it. But I want you to actually stop for a second and consider how your life would be different if you actually believed it. If you actually believed that you weren't in this alone, like we all think we are, and if you could see yourself as part of a vibrating whole, and you yourself as playing a note that no one else can play in this symphonic, unfolding, you know, masterpiece, could you, for a minute, allow that to move you into a state of attention that is deeply humble, that can see through the eyes of awe and wonder and respect. Respect, which means to look again. Because that's a place that can't help but move you into those widening circles of connectivity, of action, of purpose and responsibility. If you live in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you see a strange blonde woman bawling and hugging the grass on your lawn. That might be me today, so sorry about that. Second piece of True North Wisdom, how could I possibly care for the whole if I am not caring for this vessel, for this body right here, for this community known as me? I loved Lindsay's invitation to focus on the erotic as life force and to tend to it, to focus on pleasure as activism, to be mindful of the energy flow in our own bodies, and to move in a way that is compassionate, kind, creative, and fun. I mean, maybe even exciting. Can you give yourself permission to move toward pleasure as creativity, as doing your work of stoking the life force and trusting that that energy is good and asking, as Lindsay said, what pitch am I emitting in this world? Like, maybe we don't need to take ourselves so seriously and all sound like a bunch of flat French horns or sad, sad tubas. But maybe we need to do a little tuning and tune toward joy, creativity, pleasure as that which helps to shift us into abundance, possibility, imagination. And that kind of frequency will definitely catch on. Finally, I want to make sure that you all have access to connect with what Lindsay is up to. If you are interested in Lindsay's work, you can check out the show notes to click on her website and learn more about Widen, the Widen community. You can sign up for emails, for musings on contemplation and justice, and for whatever their next offerings are going to be. Lindsay is also an eco-doula, so she offers specific care navigating climate collapse, and I believe she does that in one-on-one and group work as well. Check it out. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, if you liked this episode, please consider rating the show or sharing it with a friend. Ratings help to put us on the map as we let go of our maps. See what I did there? Also, consider becoming a patron. Patrons are what makes this show possible, but we're so much more than that. We're an actual community. We engage together. We are practicing this stuff together. Patrons receive a masterclass that's available for you to take at your own pace. 
that corresponds with this podcast. Each episode has a companion reflection and suggested practices. We share resources and our experiences with each other. To find out more, visit unknowing.org. And finally, as the poet Rilke says, be patient with all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I know I am.